Luke's Gospel, chapter 16. We begin reading in verse 1. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill. Sit down quickly and make it 400. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. The people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he or she will hate the one and love the other, or he or she will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this. They were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men. But God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Lord, help us as we dig into your word this morning. Lord, by your spirit, give us grace, give us understanding. Lord, help us to consider how this word might find application in our own experience. In Jesus' name. I got to tell you, there's problems with this parable. All right, let's just get that out there right from the get-go. There are problems with this parable. It appears, at least on the surface of things, it appears Jesus commended a dishonest manager for cheating his master. It appears Jesus was telling his listeners, when push comes to shove, it's better to be shrewd, to be cunning, to be a little devious than it is to practice honesty and integrity. That's hard to swallow in light of what Jesus and the Scriptures tell us elsewhere. What's more, when we see the parable in this particular light, it's hard to understand how the lessons Jesus taught following the parable fit with the parable itself. They just don't seem to go together. How does Jesus get these lessons from this parable? So, let's dig in. A wealthy man 
He had a manager overseeing his affairs, and it came to light that this manager had been derelict in his duties. He had wasted his master's possessions. What it says there in uh, in verse 1, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. That phrase there, it's the same phrase we find uh, just a chapter earlier. If you've got your Bible open, uh, just, just go back to Luke chapter 15, verse 13. Uh, Jesus talked about the the prodigal son squandering his father's wealth in wild living. It's the same phrase, wasteful, squandering. When we think about how the prodigal son wasted his father's inheritance, that's exactly what Jesus says this, this manager did with his master's wealth, okay? Substantial amounts of money and material resources had been entrusted to the manager's care. He had wantonly irresponsibly squandered them in a wasteful, selfish manner. If you need a a point of reference, it's like the person who's in charge of your 401k. All right? Your nest egg, your retirement account. This is what you're going to live on between the ages of 65 or 70 and, you know, 105, however old you live to be. It's like someone took that money and threw most of it away on a weekend party for himself and 200 of his closest friends, okay? That's what this manager had been like, all right? Needless to say, the master was less than happy. He called in the manager. He's firing this guy. You failed me. You've disappointed me. You've offended me. The manager, of course, finds himself between a rock and a hard place. He's about to be unemployed, by his own admission, wasn't cut out for manual labor, too weak to dig, all right? He's got soft hands. He, he, he doesn't have much of a back for, for that, that digging business. At the same time, he's proud. He has no interest in picking up the begging bull and hitting the streets either. What's he going to do? In short order, he hatched a plan, a plan to help ensure that when that last paycheck ran out, there would be those people who would be willing to provide him with room and board until he got back on his feet. Okay? It was his plan. He got a list of all those who were indebted to his master, and he started calling their debt. The first debtor owed 800 gallons of olive oil. The going rate, that was the equivalent of two or three years' wages for the average worker. Okay? So we're talking 100,000 $200,000. The manager said, cut it in half. Make it 400 gallons. We'll call it good. The second debtor who comes in, he owes a hundred, or excuse me, a thousand bushels of of wheat. That amount of grain, eight or nine years worth of wages. We're talking maybe half a million dollars here of debt. The manager says, 20% off sale today. You're in luck. Your bill reduced to 800 bushels. No problem. Now, this this is the point where this story becomes problematic. Because the master gets wind of what the manager has been doing. And instead of having him thrown into jail, I mean, come on. It appears the manager has just cost him 400 gallons of olive oil, 200 bushels of wheat, and, and whatever other discounts he's been handing out to to the debtors. If I'm the master, I'm calling the authorities. I'm calling the cops. I'm having this guy arrested for fraud or theft or gross malfeasance, whatever that is. 
Tom, is, is gross malfeasance a crime? Oh, okay. I'm not calling the cops on gross malfeasance, but, but theft and fraud, I know those are crimes. I, I, I'm getting the authorities involved. But that isn't what happens here. Look, look at what the manager does instead, or the master. He, he commends the manager. Comes over him, puts his arm around him, slaps him on the back and says, Good going! Wow, that's impressive! You really got the stuff! Commends him for having been so shrewd, so cunning, so smart, for having figured out this way to curry favor and win friends so as to protect himself from the hard days to come. It just doesn't make any sense. Unless... Unless there's some other explanation, unless there's something we're missing here, something we don't quite see in our modern 21st century eyes when we look at this parable. Under the law of Moses, the Jewish people were prohibited from charging one another, from charging other Jews interest in their business dealings. Now, as was the case with much of the Mosaic law, the Jewish people had found a way around this prohibition. Records, historical records from Jesus' era, they show that it was common for someone in this manager's position to charge not interest, but a commission. Now, strangely enough, this commission, it grew the longer the debt was outstanding, which sort of reminds you of interest, but no. No, no, it wasn't interest. It was a commission, okay? Now, this commission... It often served as part of the manager's salary. In some cases, it might be his entire salary, this commission he was receiving. So whatever the bill, the manager was expected to add a certain percentage as his commission. It's very, very likely this was the practice Jesus had in mind when he told this parable. And it's likely for at least three reasons. First, if we accept that the manager was surrendering his commission... The master's response actually makes sense, okay? He's not commending the manager for ripping him off yet again. You know, the the, the master is not so stupid as to say, fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, wow, you are really smart. No, 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 that is not what the master is saying here at all. The master is commending the manager for having the good sense to sacrifice his immediate profit for the sake of some long-term security. Second, it does away with this much more significant problem of, of Jesus appearing to promote dishonesty over integrity. All right? Jesus wasn't advocating dishonesty in this parable. He was advocating the wise use of money and material possessions for long-term, eternal gain. Finally, the things Jesus taught after this parable, the lessons he drew from this parable... They actually fit. They start to make sense if we see this parable from this particular angle. Because what we're seeing here is a previously foolish, dishonest, wasteful manager. He now shows himself to have had a change of heart, a change of mind. He's become wise. He's surrendering profits he had coming in the moment to ensure that those to whom he'd been generous would look favorably upon him, helping meet his long-term need. Look at what Jesus said in verse 9 as he applied the parable's lesson. He said, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves 
so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What is Jesus saying there? Now, if we read that just, just on the surface of things, we give it a quick read, we don't pay much attention, it almost sounds like Jesus is suggesting that we use money and stuff entrusted to us to make friends with the world around us, to impress the world, to influence the world, to create goodwill with the world, to see to it that the world around us likes us. Oh, yeah, you spend $1,000 on me, I like you. You know, the world, friendship can work that way sometimes in the world around us. But, you know, that doesn't really fit with that last bit about being welcomed into eternal dwellings, does it? How does spending a bunch of money on the people of this world see to it that, that we are welcomed into e- eternal dwellings. Exactly what sort of friends did Jesus have in mind here? Exactly what sort of friends are we supposed to gain for ourselves in the way we use our worldly wealth? If the goal of it all is to be welcomed into eternal dwellings, is it most probable, almost certainly the case, Jesus was talking about using our money and stuff to show ourselves to be friends of heaven, God's friends, the sort of people who are, who are seeking to do what, what God would want us to do with our, our money and our stuff. Isn't that in keeping with what Jesus said in the next two verses, verses 10, 11, and 12, actually three verses? He says, listen, we, we've been entrusted with God's property. God's the master. The money and stuff that comes our way, it isn't ours. It belongs to God. We've simply been called by God to to manage it, to oversee it. So to actually be a trustworthy manager, that, that means doing what the master would want us to do with this money and stuff. It means doing what God would want us to do with this money and stuff. We're free to waste it. Squander it, throw it away foolishly, but, but if we do, we, we certainly shouldn't expect God is ever going to give us anything of real value. I'm sure some of you were here. I can't remember if it was Brennan and Justine's shower or if it was Christy Romo's birthday party, but just in the last couple of weeks, Mark, uh, Mark Allen drove up in his big work truck, okay? Big bucket truck, drove it up here. You know, not exactly your, your personal sort of vehicle, all right? Now, that isn't his vehicle. It's the guy who owns his company. It belongs to him. But, but that guy has, has so much trust and confidence in Mark that he lets Mark drive that vehicle around. He even lets Mark drive it to church rather than driving out site and getting his car. And Mark, is free. Mark has that sort of relationship with his, his master, his boss, his employer, that, that he can use company resources in that way, and it's not a problem. Now, if Mark decided to take that bucket truck on a personal vacation to Southern California, that might be a problem with the employer. If Mark decided to take that bucket truck and go off-road four-wheeling, number one, that isn't going to last very long. Number two, God have mercy and grace on anybody who gets in Mark's way. Finally, let's hope there's a major industrial tow truck in the area to get that truck back up and out and back on the... It's going to be a mess. That kind of behavior is not what what Mark's boss, 
his master wants him doing with that truck, okay? If Mark starts doing that sort of stuff with the truck, it isn't long before Mark comes into work one day and he finds there's a pink slip in his box. He finds that he no longer has a job, all right? That's what, that's what Jesus is talking about here. Listen, God has given us as, as his people the, the oversight of all manner of resources and has said to us, listen, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to be trustworthy or not? There's a lot riding on that question. Because look at how Jesus concludes his commentary on this parable in verse 13. He says, you, you managers, all of you people out there entrusted by God with money and stuff, what's it going to be? Are you going to be faithful servants of God the Master? Or will you end up being seduced by all that money and stuff and start to serve the money and stuff itself rather than the one who's master over the money and the stuff? Are you going to throw away your long-term security, your eternal life for the sake of financial and and material gratification here and now in in the moment? That's really the question that lies behind what Jesus is saying here. You know, we love it when Jesus talks about forgiveness. We love it when Jesus talks about how much he loves us despite of all of our failures and sins and shortcomings. We love it when Jesus reaches out and heals someone of leprosy or causes the lame man to walk again. We love it when when Jesus multiplies bread and fish or walks upon the water or tells the wind and the waves to, to, to quiet down. But you know, again and again and again, Jesus talks to us about money and stuff. And then a lot of times, if we're really, we'd never say this out loud. We'd think it in our heads, maybe. We'd never say it. But we, we just kind of wish Jesus would go away because we're not so appreciative of, of Jesus then. Because Jesus says stuff about our money and stuff we don't want to hear. Because all things considered, we'd like to think that money and stuff is ours. Again, I go to work, I put in 40, 50, 60 hours a week, it's my money. With my money, I buy my stuff. It's my money, it's my stuff. But Jesus again and again and again, he says, no, it's not your money and it's not your stuff. God has been good to you, gracious to you, he's blessed you, he's, he's, he's prospered you, he's allowed you to oversee a certain amount of money, a certain amount of stuff, but that's all you are. You're a manager, you're a steward, you're an overseer. That's all you are. It belongs to God and ultimately you're responsible to God with how you use that money and stuff. And it's there, a lot of times, we just wish Jesus would be quiet. And if he won't be quiet, we'd kind of like to turn away and maybe walk a few paces off in the distance where we we can't hear quite so clearly what Jesus is saying. Because this stuff, really, it's countercultural. It goes against everything the world around us is telling us about our money and stuff. This, 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 This is not the American approach to money and stuff, what, what Jesus is saying here. Because this entire parable, really, it's nothing less than Jesus' commentary on the wrong and the right of how people relate to money and stuff, how people use money and stuff. Yeah, now, let, let's be honest about this, folks, okay? Let, let's just put it out on the table. There, there's no reason for us to pretend it's otherwise. One way or another, we have all of us, every one of us, squandered and wasted so many of the good things God has entrusted to us money and stuff that could have been invested to advance the master's kingdom. 
we've frittered it away on foolishness, selfishness, been left with nothing of eternal value to show. We've all done that in one way or another. But here's the thing. God's grace, God's goodness, God's love for us. Like the manager in Jesus' story, we can change. We can have a change of heart. We can have a change of mind. We can have a change of direction. Brought to our senses by God's grace. We can realize the stakes at hand. We can repent. We can turn around and go a new direction. Turn away from foolishness, from selfish, wasteful ways of living. Start using what we've been given to to prepare for eternity. In a sense, to, to gain God's friendship by our willingness to use what God has entrusted to us for the sorts of things that please God and that serves God's purpose. Now let me be clear, we are not buying our way into heaven here. God, I'm going to drop $1,000 in the offering today and I'm, I'm kind of seeing this as my down payment on a little three-bedroom corner townhouse there in eternity. Uh, we have a deal, God? No, no, come on. It doesn't work that way. We're not buying our way into heaven in any sense of the word. But friends, if we are truly intent on God being our master, God being our Lord and master, then as our master, instead of money and stuff being our master, don't we use the money and stuff the master has entrusted to us to make the master happy? To bless his heart? To do the things that that he wants done to accomplish the purposes he wants accomplished? When we do that, when we're good managers of whatever God has entrusted to us, you know, there's a learning curve with that. We're we're learning. We're we're students in God's financial school or God's school of management. Call it whatever you want. We're like students. We're learning to be good managers of the much greater and more glorious things that God will entrust to us in eternity. To boil it down to the basics, this parable is Jesus' way of saying, hey folks, wake up. How you use your money and stuff, it's proof positive of who your real master really is. What's more, how you use your money and stuff, it's going to impact your eternity. That's a hard thing for us to hear. I know it. And yet, this is so much of what Jesus is saying here. I read these these last two verses. They're not actually part of the parable. They're more of a response to the parable. But verses 14 and 15, the Pharisees who are sitting around listening to Jesus talk, Luke says they sneered at Jesus' message. They were offended. They, 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 They made fun. They derided what it was they were hearing because they loved money and stuff. Money and stuff was what they were about. But Jesus had the last word, didn't he? He said, what you Pharisees love so much, what you value, what you think is so important, all this money and stuff, listen, God, God finds it all detestable. And it's not that God finds money and stuff detestable, it's that God finds your love for this money and stuff detestable. It breaks his heart that you would worship money and stuff rather than worship the master of the money and stuff the author and creator of life. God help us. God save us from becoming modern day Pharisees. God help us to embrace not all of the stuff the world values, but but to embrace what God values. God help us to use this money and stuff that God's entrusted to us to serve God, 
to serve God faithfully, to prepare ourselves for, for God's kingdom come. Because it is coming. There is coming a day when the dollar won't be worth much. There's coming a day when our house, our car, our 401k, whatever it is, it isn't going to be worth much. There's going to be a whole new economy. There's going to be a whole new set of values. Eternal values, kingdom values. And the investment that we've made with what God has given us in this life is going to be reflected in the return we enjoy in that eternal economy. A hard word, but hopefully a good word. I'll ask the worship team to come as we prepare for our communion meal this morning. The thing is, there wasn't any value or worth, there wasn't any position, there wasn't anything that Jesus found more valuable And simply coming into this world as a human being, flesh and blood, to live like us, to experience life amongst us, and ultimately to take upon himself our sins so as to die for us, so that we could share the value, the worth of eternity. The cup, the bread... This represents the price paid. And together here this morning, we remember yet again the price that was paid to purchase for us an eternal salvation of worth beyond any silver or gold or precious jewels this world has to offer. As you come this morning,